1: This podcast is produced on Gadigal Land.
0: One of the things that really stands out to me is that health is a fundamental right of every human being. And when we have this goal of, you know, having better pain management, we have to have all voices on the table. It's only then that can we we can address some of the gaps and issues.
1: You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat it's my great pleasure to introduce to you all this morning Dr. Manasee Matinti. Dr. Matinti is a physician scientist and a lecturer at the University of Sydney, but your area of specialties in pain management through the lens of, I guess, cultural sensitivities, what does that actually mean?
0: Sure. Hi, Sandra. Thank you for having me. It's such a great pleasure to be here with you today. So I think when we think about chronic pain, we often just limit ourselves to thinking about it as a medical condition. But what evidence shows us, and this has been known for quite some time, is that every individual experiences pain in their own biopsychosocial context. What that means is that irrespective of how you are injured, where you are in your life at that stage has a greater impact. So psychological factors such as what's your mood like, how can you cope well, what is your social factors like, how is your support system at home, What are your relationships? Do you have the kind of network that will help you to recover from your chronic painful condition? So within this framework, I think culture plays a very important role because as we all know, each one of us grows with certain beliefs and certain set of values that we inherit from our culture. And that impacts how we look at not only life, but how we look at health, how we look at disease. And most importantly, it dictates the way we want to access healthcare and how we want to look at ourselves growing older. So that's where culture comes into play, especially in chronic painful conditions.
1: Now you survived an accident that caused third degree burns over a large part of your body. Is that what triggered this fascination with living with pain and managing pain?
0: Yes, definitely. I think that was a trigger for me because I very clearly remember having a very good medical team of doctors and I would often ask them, I have terrible pain. What can be done so that I feel a little bit less pain and less discomfort? And I was assured that as your wounds start healing, your pain will go. So I knew that the extent of injuries was such deep that it was going to take a long period of time. But I waited for days, weeks, months, years, and pain never really left me. So chronic pain became like a companion for me. And I was challenged by it. I wanted to know why, when my wounds are looking like they're recovering, why has the sensation not left me? Why isn't it changing? Someday it was worse and someday it was a little bit better and that gives you hope, like, oh, I think I'm stepping forward, I'm recovering, and then bang something, very unknown happens and then you're back to the grind, back to where you were a few weeks back, a few months back. So that really triggered my passion to look into chronic pain, that why does it exist when I'm doing everything right? And I think as a young person at that point, I wanted to understand Could I have done anything differently to help myself? Did I do something wrong during my journey to recovery? So that, I think, interested me.
1: So when you consider your own experience, had you connected your own cultural background and your pain management techniques?
0: Oh, that is such an interesting question. Yes, I do reflect in two ways, particularly. Because at the moment, I'm working on a concept, which is called as dyadic coping. It sounds big, but it's not really complex. It just means that when two people share close relationship, yes, the focus is on intimacy and partners, but it could be parents and children, but it could also be any prime caregiver who is a close network for someone who's suffering from illness or chronic pain. So when they look at chronic pain together, they start employing strategies to cope which are together as a unit. So we do our own individual coping, but we also do it as a joint, as a pair, as a unit. And so we see very interesting dynamics in research. We see that when someone has a good understanding of the shared coping and respond to, so patients respond well to their primary care support and vice versa, then their recovery and well-being is way enhanced. And when I connect this back to myself, I think most importantly what i recollect is when i got burned i just wanted to go home and my mom said to me that no you got to go to hospital but after that we'll go home which she knew wasn't soon enough she wanted to prepare me that no you will be in hospital for a while and i looked at her and i remember seeing at my dad and my mom and they were scared and i was thinking why are they so scared i just want to go home like this is done i was wrapped in a blanket waiting for an ambulance but as a child I couldn't comprehend what had just happened to me and I remember being wheeled into ICU and looking back and thinking gosh they're scared I can't die on them. If I die this is going to kill them. So I took a lot of responsibility of my recovery. I felt like I had done something to displace them. I had put an additional pressure on them. So I remember very distinctly not making way big about that accident. Every time I saw anyone I would try and emphasize, I'm perfectly fine, I'm well, I'm lying down on the bed, I can't sit, I'm in bandage, I'm covered in a net because I can't put on any clothes. And in that situation, I kept on saying, I'm perfect, I'm fine. Now, when I look back, I think, without knowing that it was dietary coping, I understood that it was a give and take between them and me, I had to support them, though I was, you know, in a lot of distress, I instantly knew that if I dropped the ball, If I cried while the bandaging and everything was going on, that's going to break them further.
1: I guess the underlying premise here is anyone that's injured in some sort of accident, it always doesn't just affect the individual, it affects the family. Yes. Did you find your own cultural experience, just not the responsibility of worrying about your carers and the burden on them, but given the sort of research you're focusing on, were there any connections?
0: Yes, I think I see a lot of context between spirituality, especially coming from an Indian origin. Whenever you s- experience anything which is long, chronic disease or is a long-standing condition, I think people often go inward and try and reflect why this has presented now, what does it mean to me, what is the significance, what it is trying to tell me, is there a spiritual connection here, why it has presented itself in my life at this stage. And I did see that sort of similar reflection in Indigenous Australian communities as well. So when they experience pain, they reflect upon the spirituality of it, its connection to their loss and grief and intergenerational trauma. So yes, I think that connection does definitely come out.
1: So you've done some work with Indigenous Australians in South Australia. And we should also acknowledge that you're fresh from the US a short time ago, having studied over there. What are the findings from the work with Indigenous Australians in pain management?
0: We saw very interesting research. So there were some commonalities like a desire to be pain-free, recognizing that being pain-free will allow them to live a more meaningful life. But I think the stark differences for me was primarily that a lot of the people that I saw in my study were exposed to chronic pain very early on in life so they had literally grown up with family and community members who had struggled with chronic pain so they it was not unusual to have chronic pain like they just expected that this was going to be a part of my life also the fact that they saw a lot of harm and injury in the society so they were prepared that you know this is something that's that's coming towards me and also viewing a lot of addiction to pain medication having a lot of fear about not taking on medications, but trying to figure out other ways of coping because they had observed that it definitely did not help their family in long run. So trying and figuring out what can I do differently and trying to find distraction or other methods of coping with pain rather than making it a big medical issue. Indigenous Australian people especially feel a strong connection to the land. And so this concept of intergenerational trauma that they carry within themselves, that itself is emotional pain. And so the biggest challenge for me when I started this research was how do you separate emotional pain from physical pain? And I think that's where the biggest drawback is, that the measurements that we use in clinic are assessing physical pain. So they do not represent their lived experience, their life circumstances, or how their life every day looks like.
1: And are they always connected?
0: I think in this particular population, they are always connected. And that's where I think the struggle is for Indigenous Australian communities to bring pain assessment is that the scales that we are using have only been tested in Caucasian population. They have never been tested. So we have started this work where we just very recently tested a pain scale, a fear of assessment scale. And slowly the intention is to build upon that and get more scales in. But I think there's that measurement gap that comes across.
1: Wow, there's a lot of work to do. So what did you discover in treating pain in different communities?
0: It does differ from community to community. If we see a Caucasian person come into a clinic with acute pain, for example, they have had a fall, they have fractured something, we treat that pain as acute. But through research and through my own work with Indigenous communities, what I see is that if an Indigenous Australian person has walked in, yes, they have fractured, that's acute presentation, but it's really important to consider if they have had chronic painful condition in the past. So it's an acute presentation, but not necessarily acute pain. There could be an underlying chronic pain already. So there is a difference in presentations.
1: It's a fascinating exploration and a study area. What sort of support have you had, you know, from a national level in pursuing this level of research?
0: Not very much, I'm afraid. That's been one of the biggest challenge for me is because I have never held a position which was research only. I hold positions which are teaching focused and I love teaching because you learn so much while you teach but I think it would really help to have funding which focuses or gives you you know dedicated time to put towards the research. Most of my work does happen in my own time weekends and evenings that's how I have built on my research. One of the drawbacks that I feel the lack of funding is because the measures that are used when you are looking at a westernized population or a Caucasian population, the same criteria are applied when you're looking for a culturally diverse population, and it's not on the same platform so it's really it takes longer to do research in a diverse population, whereas it's the the criteria for Caucasian populations are not met because you take more time, you need more resources. so I think that imbalance has led to you know, difference in funding and get, securing funding.
1: What can Western civilizations learn from studies like yours?
0: I think one of the things that really stands out to me is that health is a fundamental right of every human being. And when we have this goal of, you know, having better pain management, we have to have all voices on the table. It's only then that can we, we can address some of the gaps and issues if we don't invite everyone on the table, we are still looking at a misaligned health care and we are looking at not achieving the optimal pain management that we so want to. So it's really important that there are better opportunities for this research.
1: You'd use it as an example yarning with elders in the community for Indigenous Australians and that would be recommended as part of the pain management. That says to me that each culturally diverse group has a bunch of tools that we may all be unaware of, and yet it's important to elicit what is specific to that person and the community they're residing in.
0: Yes, absolutely. When I go to a talk and I talk about my research in Indigenous Australian communities, the one thing that I really try and drive is that I have done, I would say, very preliminary research. There's a plethora of knowledge that still needs to be explored, and oftentimes we think we are going to help them But there is a lot of knowledge and skills that we can learn from, just from the fact that, you know, they are coping well without going down medical management. There are strategies that can be integrated into our management of pain as well. And yarning is an excellent example, which is used as distraction, but you also speak to someone who's lived or walked that path before you. So they can give you some insights, they can give you some helpful tips. I think we all benefit from it in our personal life, but it's just that we don't want to integrate that in a medical or a healthcare setting and I, I don't see why it could be a fantastic way of integrating two very diverse cultures together.
1: There must be an enormous array of sensitivities when you're approaching subjects like this. What shackles did you have to sort of deal with before you went down this path?
0: I think I was very fortunate because I got introduced to a mentor of mine, Professor Lisa Jemison, who's from University of Adelaide, I come from a lower caste system in India. So I have grown up with discrimination on various levels as a woman, as a lower caste person, then getting burned, that stigma was there. So it was an everyday living thing for me. And I had parents who inculcated that if you find yourself doing slightly better than the community, you must always come back and give back. So it comes very naturally. So when I moved to Australia, my intention was How can I work for those who are underrepresented? And luckily, I met Lisa, and she already had the networks. And when I spoke about my pain research, she was full on with it. And she said, let's do this. So I had that kind of support, a mentor who was holding my hand. And to be very honest with you, the community was very nice to me. They were very welcoming. And I wasn't prepared for the amount of information that was going to come my way. So it really surprised me. I feel very fortunate that, you know, you get to live this kind of very broad spectrum where I've had the lived experience of chronic pain and now I'm trying to work out as a physician scientist.
1: You do a lot of research and work clinically at the Pain Management Research Institute at the Royal North Shore Hospital. Clearly, traditional Western medicine is to treat chronic pain with a drug treatment or a drug cocktail. Would you still recommend that in principle?
0: I would say that, yes, it is important to have biomedical assessment. But I think what we see from evidence is that there should be declining emphasis on looking at pain as just a bodily issue. We need to get a holistic perspective. We need to bring an understanding of how to help the individual and not the symptom. So if we change that focus from just trying to manage their symptoms to then looking at how we can not only help them live with pain, but thrive with pain is what I would hope the future offers to chronic pain patients. So Dr. Matinti,
1: we've discussed chronic pain on Short Black before with Sister Mary Lynn Cochran, and it's interesting, from a religious perspective, she was all about treating the individual, not just the individual, but the whole person, not just the chronic pain. And managing pain must be approached from a multidisciplinary area. And the socialisation, the communication, the sharing of stories The parallels with Indigenous Australians and your experience in South Australia, I find quite remarkable. I guess at the essence of it, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's really about the unburdening of the weight of chronic pain is about talking things through with people who understand and care about you.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's I think, captures it really well. It's really, really important that we have a team of people looking at this condition and not individualising it you know, just having one medical management approach towards chronic pain.
1: So where to from here for your research?
0: (laughs) Yes, I am working on developing programs. Like I said, my vision is that we have a program which will not only provide knowledge and skills to the person living with chronic pain, but also their families on how to adapt and adjust and move on with this condition. That's something that I'm very passionate about and I want to address the mental health burden of chronic pain as well. So the vision for me is to develop this patient-centric programs on platforms which are easily accessible. They can do that in their own time and not be limited to seeing a healthcare professionals. So that's the bigger goal.
1: And when do you think that might be available?
0: As soon as I get funding. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as
1: you get funding. Let's talk about your work at Harvard. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yes, so I was very, very fortunate to get selected into an advanced global clinical scholar research fellowship program last year. I just graduated in February with a Dean's commendation, two awards. Really, it's a pinch me moment for me. I was very reluctant in applying. It was suggested to me by an advisor I was working with, but I did not pursue that idea. It was actually my husband who pushed me, who said, apply, apply. And so finally I did. I I thought they will reject me and that's it. That will close the discussion. I think the program itself is focusing on clinical research and looking at how you can build scalable research that is not limited just by countries, but you can expand it on a global platform. I knew that that was the vision, but I underestimated the amount of excitement, the amount of sharing, you know, passion for the work that you do, leadership, pushing boundaries a little bit, all sort of gamuts of skills that were shared with us. It was just a brilliant, like a dream.
1: Well, last year you won the Women's Agenda Leader in Health Award. And I guess things like today, it's about elevating your story and getting your messaging out there. Now, a lot of academics aren't all that comfortable with the spotlight, and yet you're increasingly finding yourself in the glare of it. Are you comfortable with it or do you find it a necessary evil?
0: Uh, No, I don't necessarily find it as an evil at all. But I feel like there is that thin line where sometimes, and I've worked with media previously and I feel like they have their pressures, we have our pressures. So I think finding that sweet line is really important. But I was very, very amazed by winning that Women's Agenda Award because just to be a finalist was good enough for me. And when my name was announced, I was shocked. So it was remarkable to be acknowledged for my work. And I think particularly for me at that stage, I was really starting to wonder, does this matter? Am I visible? Am I doing this in the right direction? Or am I losing my sight here? And winning that award, I think, has benefited this cause. Because it certainly drew a lot of conversations around inclusivity, diversity, simple things like, sex and gender so in clinical research we often ask a patient what is your sex which is biological but sometimes we need to also address gender which is society approved and you know taking on the societal role which is ever changing and I think science should always function in sync with the society and in this decade we are very big on diversity and inclusivity and that should be reflected in our science but unfortunately it's not. So I'm a big advocate of that, and winning that award drew focus to chronic pain, mental health, and inclusivity. I couldn't have asked for a better platform to promote this, and I personally feel like these are two mammoth aspirations, and I'm lucky to be a very tiny fragment, and if I could push the envelope slightly ahead and leave it for someone else to push it further, I'm happy with that. So I think I'm very, very grateful for this exposure and the opportunity that it brought.
1: Well, I do want to mention as an aside, I'm a huge fan and supporter of all the work they do at Women's Agenda, elevating women's issues. And Angela Priestley and the team do a tremendous job with the awards each year. But elevating you and your story is significant. We are, though, living in a world where there's a wave of cultural change underpinning everything we do, and it's woke v non woke. And you talk about the gender specifics and managing pain through the prisms of culture and race and ethnicity and religion. While we're dealing with this wave of cultural change, is there a pressure in the medical world to try to find a footing and act sensitively through it?
0: Yes, I think you captured it so well because I think as a scientist or as a medical scientist in particular, we have certain regulations and we have certain recommendations that have been laid out way before and they have been never revisited. So we are trying to align our vision with something that existed 60, 50 years back. So there's always going to be that gap. And I think it's very important to recognize that you are limited by processes. But at the same time, you have to justify the time and the setting you are in. I don't see the merit in trying to do similar kind of work, which would not be useful for the community that I live in. There's a lot of money, there's a lot of hard work, there's a lot of sleepless nights, exhaustion at cost here. And I think so, whether it gets applauded or not, I think it's really important to push that envelope. I often find myself having this really challenging conversations and as a person of color, women of color, I experience the discrimination at different levels, but I think it breaks my heart. I go home, cry. (laughs) I take a moment to just feel, you know, let down by the system and process it, Mm. you know, feel sorry if I have to. But then the next morning, it's all in the past go back again to what you were doing and I think sometimes it does challenge you as a young person like is it too much sometimes but I also see the benefit of it and I also see the merit of it for the community at large and I think you've got to just you know advocate it.
1: There's a really strong emerging Indian community in Australia. You touched on earlier the caste system and, and how that affects you and will arguably for the rest of your life.
0: Yes. I think it's a very tricky space to be born in, to be very honest with you. Because I was born to people or my parents who were very cerebral, educated. My dad worked in Reserve Bank of India as a manager when he passed away a few years back. And so they were very... I was never raised to feel like I was inferior to anyone. So my home environment was very much, you are the best, you can achieve everything with hard work. And then I go out, and I never really got discriminated as, or oh, you are a lower caste person. I always got told, you don't look like a lower caste person. You don't sound like a lower caste person. And that used to mess up my thinking. I used to think, What do they mean by that? Like, what were they expecting? Was I going to come crawling? Was I going to come, you know?
1: Was there some outward mark that branded me as such?
0: Yeah. Was I going to have a long tail or something? Like, what do you mean by that? And so, when I would have this conversation with my dad, especially, I remember him telling that being from a lower caste is a superpower because it keeps you grounded. You know, the reality of being a human being. And I carry that burden on me, I think, sometimes because. He clearly wanted me to raise above those limitations and helped me get where I am today. But I think still, when I go back, I see this sort of subtle discrimination. It's not very obvious in your face, but there are certain remarks or certain comments that come your way, which make you rethink that, gosh, this has not improved, has it? And now I am married to someone who is from the highest caste in India.
1: Does that change your
0: caste? In Indian standards, it does, but it, it hasn't changed anything for me or for my family or us as a couple. And I think I've been very fortunate because he's someone who does not believe in all of this. So finding that right partner has been a blessing. I still live by what my dad said, that being from a lower caste is actually a superpower. You, you are never mean. <laughs> you never discriminate. You always take both side perspective. You're never going to put yourself onto someone and say, I am great, listen to me. You're always going to try and find a middle ground.
1: Someone once told me that whatever caste you're born into, you can never leave, regardless of how successful and whatever achievements you make. Is that true?
0: Yes, it is. On a very personal, deep level, I think I will always carry that sense of coming from a caste which is discriminated heavily in India. But having said that, I truly feel that I'm a global citizen because I got to live in five countries, I think, up until now. I did my medicine in Russia. I was born in India. I've worked in Europe. I've lived in US. Now I'm a proud Australian. And I feel like getting this opportunity to travel around with the humbleness of knowing how close you are to being ridiculed just for something as silly as a caste which nobody chooses to be born in, or it's hypothetical, has kept me very grounded. And I have made a very conscious effort of picking up what's good in the community and the society and the culture I am in and making it a part of my personality. So I feel like I am an excellent representation of a global citizen where I've taken in all the good and I have kept away myself consciously from anything that doesn't serve the greater good. For any
1: Indian Australians who are listening to this podcast here with you at Short Black, what advice would you give them, given everyone still carries the burden of the caste they were born into?
0: For me, what has served me really well is staying true to yourself. Always have your core values at heart. I mean, I think if I reflect back and look at the child who was in India, if anyone would have said, this is how my life would look, I would never accept it. Like this would probably be a dream. But all the opportunities that have come my way have come through being persistent to just have a lot of self-belief. And there are days when you can't have self-belief and it's fine. Those days are also welcome. But then picking yourself and saying, yep, I'm going to get back on the horse and try and learn and do my best, I think has served me really well. And I truly believe, having traveled so much and worked so much, I truly believe that there is more good and good people than the negative. And I have benefited from that. I love being in Australia. I have met amazing friends who have become family. And it's it's a great country to be in. But you have to do your dues of working hard, staying in the process, staying in the system. And success will come, but stay at it. Because it's quite different living in India to living in Australia. And so that cultural shock, that, you know, that image of going overseas and coming here. And the reality is that on weekends, you're cleaning your house, you know, you're, you're cleaning everything around. You're cooking for yourself, washing, ironing. That's a fact of Australian life. So I would just advise a young person that be prepared to do both and it will serve you well. Have realistic goals. Keep a plan, stick with it, don't get derailed by anything that happens. Everything happens to lead you in the right direction.
1: What's the greatest frustration or misunderstanding that Australians generally have about the Indian community?
0: Oh, that's a very big question. I think one of the misunderstandings about Indians is not knowing that they come from a background of education where English is taught to them right from primary school and LKG or the Indians are very good at English, but we are phonetically different. So accepting that not all of us are going to sound the same, but acknowledging that this person does come with a lot of knowledge and a lot of skills and giving them space. Not just Indian, I think in general, what I see is that when you have someone who comes from a diverse background, they are taken in, but they are not given space to grow or rise up and that that person starts feeling frustrated because they have been invited in given a seat at the table but there's nothing to do nothing to showcase your own talent and I think that's where Australia can do better is by creating those sort of environments like even for myself like when I came into Australia I came as an international student in dire financial hardship I had just lost my dad and I wanted to come to this country because it promised better opportunity for work and I looked at it as you know earning a little bit better than what I would back home but I have been through everything I've been through redundancy I have lost a PhD topic that I started on 18 months into it had to go back take a master's then the university felt confident enough in me as a student to allow me to pursue a second topic in PhD a lot of things have transpired in the last 10 years or so I have been here. But I think self-leadership is key when you migrate. I think we often seek outside to look f- for people who inspire us and that's great. But when it comes to applications, self-leadership is really important. Keeping true to your vision and keeping your focus intact is really important.
1: You're a humble leader. I applaud the work that you're doing. Clearly, you're a change agent and you're leading the field in a really unique and specialized area. But millions and millions of people the world over live with chronic pain and it's so debilitating. But I just want to say thank you for all the work that you're doing and we applaud you here at Short Black and we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us here today.
0: Thank you so much, Sandra, for having me. Delightful. Thank you.
1: You have been listening to Short Black, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app.